Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm bringing to you news from Bolivia, Brazil, and the United States, as well as a see you in hell from Italy. Going to begin with Bolivia, the former president of Bolivia, Janine Añez, has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for her participation in the coup that ousted former uh, Bolivian president Evo Morales during their political crisis in 2019. Janine Añez became president after the president Evo Morales was ousted in a coup by military decree. Uh, the coup that the military conducted was a result of the alleged uh, electoral irregularities surrounding President Morales's re-election, which admittedly had some weird irregularities. He had pushed through some changes to law to allow him to run again. However, he was removed not legally, but by the military forcing him to be removed, which makes it a coup. So Añez became the president because the remainder of the political party to which uh, Evo Morales belonged, MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo, they all left government essentially after their president was removed. And so she is sort of like second deputy to the president of the Senate became the president. She presided over a military and police crackdown on allies of Morales and of peasants and indigenous people in Bolivia in general. She was later jailed by the Bolivian government after the allies of Morales returned to power, after MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo, returned to power. She was jailed for her involvement in the coup and has now been sentenced, like I said, to 10 years in prison. Continuing on with some information about Latin America, there is a congressional group in Brazil, specifically a organization within the Brazilian Congress that is trying to get the Brazilian Congress to have sufficient power to overturn decrees by the Supreme Federal Tribunal, which is the top court, the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Brazil. Now, this is clearly coup preparation stuff because this particular congressional group in Brazil is a right-wing congressional group. These are allies of Jair Bolsonaro. So their plan, obviously, is to try to get the Brazilian Congress to have the authority to overturn the decrees of the Supreme Federal Tribunal in case that Bolsonaro and their allies need that kind of legal backing in order to be able to establish the legitimacy of their coup or a continued Bolsonaro government in the event of a Lula victory this fall uh, or spring in Brazil. Moving on to the United States, and unfortunately, there's a lot of shitty stuff that happened in the United States recently. Uh, there was a Proud Boy confrontation at a, an event in the Public Library of San Lorenzo, California. The event was one in which a local drag queen named Panda Dulce read stories to children, just, um, you know, as volunteer at a local library. The Proud Boys, one of the largest and most dangerous of the fascist organizations operative in the United States today, entered the library. Uh, there were about 12 of them there, and they aggressively threatened both Panda Dulce, the preschoolers, uh, which she was reading to, and their parents who had accompanied their kids to this library. They were using homophobic and um, anti-trans slurs. They had depictions of weapons, uh, specifically AR rifles, on their shirts. Uh, they were, like I said, using slurs that I am in no interest of repeating and which uh, no one should be of interest in repeating. This is clear evidence of the ramping up 
rate of violence and threats of violence against queer people and queer events. This is not just happening because it's Pride Month. It's because this is an increasing tactic that we're going to be seeing on the part of the right wing in the United States. Another unfortunate example of this, very similar, very similarly involved, uh, is a Patriot Front rally, or an attempted Patriot Front rally, at an LGBTQ event, at a Pride event in Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. Uh, it happened this Saturday on the 11th. I mentioned this in a previous episode, uh, that local politicians and local biker gangs have said that they wanted people to confront this Pride event. And they were using the anti-LGBTQ language that has come to predominate on this uh, this particular political issue, you know, calling people pedophiles, calling people groomers, that sort of thing. Uh, this is how the right wing has been referring to queer people, LGBTQ people, and specifically homosexual men in, you know, the last couple months. So these local politicians said that they wanted people to confront this event, that they wanted it to be disrupted, that they even wanted it to be attacked. And that is exactly what was happening uh, at this Pride event on Saturday the 11th, while most people were, you know, dancing or buying food from vendors or, you know, just being at a like sort of nice outdoor during the day party, other people showed up with actual AKs, uh, with other assault rifles. Uh, they were milling around, which you can just do in Idaho. You know, it's Idaho. Uh, they were wearing tactical gear. They were wearing tactical masks uh, to prevent people from knowing who they were. Remember, again, this is Idaho. People don't typically actually wear masks because of the coronavirus in that state, especially not people who are right-wingers, right? Later on in the day, something much worse could have happened, uh, but was fortunately prevented. Later on in the day, a local business owner noticed some disturbing activity involving a couple of U-Hauls that had been parked a couple miles away from the park where this Pride event was happening. And it turns out, upon a police investigation of these U-Hauls, which were behaving in a disturbing manner, that they were actually full of 31 fascists. Uh, these fascists belong to an organization called the Patriot Front, uh, which is a fascist organization uh, operative in the United States right now uh, that is an offshoot of Vanguard America, a neo-Nazi organization which was part of Unite the Right. Uh, the murderer of Heather Hare, the person who died at the Unite the Right rally, who was run over by, the, by a car, uh, the person who did that running over was a member of Vanguard America. So this, this is that lineage of fascism in the United States. Patriot Front was founded by Thomas Rousseau, a very young fascist. He's in his mid-20s. And he was there at Coeur d'Alene and was arrested by the police because of the obvious plan that he and his 30 other fascists had to start a riot. You know, they were, they were trying to start, instigate a street violent confrontation at this entirely peaceful, just like normal run-of-the-mill street fair pride event. This kind of violence is just going to be increasingly common in the United States unless the power of the right wing is confronted and decreased, unless it's confronted and stopped. Eventually, one of these organizations is going to succeed at instigating the kind of like mass partisan violence that they're clearly preparing to. That was obviously the point here this kind of thing is just going to unfortunately keep happening. 
Moving on to the ongoing legal consequences of the attempted coup on January 6th, we have more evidence and more testimony and more documentation coming out because the January 6th Select Committee is finally actually doing its public hearings. Uh, they started last Thursday and they're continuing for the next coming weeks. Their focus on the previous couple meetings has been on the, quote, big lie. Uh, this is the conspiracy claim on the part of Trump and a lot of his allies that the election was stolen from him, that the 2020 election was stolen from him and his allies, that Trump is actually the real president, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so this is sort of the thing that the January 6th committee was focused on at first, but they've also taken a turn toward discussing the relationship between members of Congress and Trump's allies and the paramilitary organizations that actually stormed the Capitol building, you know, the people who were actually putting their bodies out there during the coup. There has been an emphasis so far uh, that this, you know, this is this is the the state, this is the government, this is the January 6th committee, it's part of the government, uh, acknowledging that there was a dedicated attempt to overthrow the United States government. Now, that's kind of, is pretty seriously a big deal. You know, this, it's not often that the United States investigates an event like this. Possibly the last time would be, yeah, like something like the Civil War. Um, most of the time when Congress investigates something like this, even on a partisan level, like in Watergate, it's, you know, it's about like a particular small event and not a conspiracy to overthrow the government that arguably involves most of the people in one of the leading parties in the country. One thing that recently came to light as a result of the committee's uh, release of documents is that a Republican representative from Georgia, who represents the North Atlanta area, a guy named Representative Loudermilk, had led a tour specifically to enable the people who were going to invade the Capitol building to know what it looks like on the inside. Now, it's not unusual for members of Congress to give tours to you know, citizens, ostensibly people from their district. But this tour was not focused on, you know, like the Capitol Rotunda or the meeting halls of Congress, you know, the House of Representatives or the Senate. It was focused on hallways and stairwells and security checkpoints. Uh, we have security footage released by the committee of Loudermilk and the other people on this tour taking photos of these like otherwise innocuous areas. Obviously, there is no reason for somebody to be taking these kinds of photos unless they are dedicatedly planning a physical invasion of the Capitol building. You know, that's what they were clearly doing. And Loudermilk either knew what was happening or is grossly and just like spectacularly ignorant about what the plan was. Um, and personally, I do not believe the latter. Uh, I, I assume from this that Loudermilk knew what he was doing, that he knew that he was helping people engage in a physical invasion of the Capitol building, people who were just like openly threatening to attack his fellow members of Congress, his fellow U.S. citizens, his fellow human persons, people who were threatening to kill one of the leading members of his party, Vice President Mike Pence. This is obvious insider prep stuff. And we, you know, we got the receipts. There's security footage about this. Another thing that has come to light in the last couple of weeks is that finally we have on public record a document that has been rumored and talked about on the right wing for several months. This is a document called 1776 Returns, and it's an internal planning document that the members of right wing paramilitaries, such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, distributed amongst themselves and also externally 
on January 6th and in the days preceding January 6th. It is a plan, a nine-page plan, to occupy important buildings in the Capitol Hill area. This plan details, you know, how many people are needed to occupy each of these buildings. It talks about organizing the leaders of these occupations, separating out the roles into leaders and secondaries and hype men, presumably people leading chants and stuff like that. It talks about how you should distribute this information, you know, that like only trusted allies should know the real plan and that externally facing documents, uh, which was just sort of like a one page flyer, shouldn't really contain any of this incriminating information. It contained a map of the Capitol Hill area with circles around important buildings, and it identified certain target buildings, which were specifically those that are occupied by congressional offices and the offices of congressional staff persons. The goal of these occupations was to prevent the counting of the electoral votes that would have inaugurated Joe Biden and to demand a new election on January 20th as opposed to Biden's inauguration. That was the plan that was laid out in this document, 1776 Returns. This is something that we have known about for a couple months, like I said, but uh, that we just now actually know about. Uh, you can just go Google this thing. It's, it's, it's actually very terrifying, and I encourage you to read it. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with uh, See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Julius Evola, a fascist intellectual of the Italian right-wing. Evola was born in Rome in 1898 to a sort of middle-classish family. He studied engineering but did not care about it. Uh, instead, he wanted to become an artist and a public intellectual, essentially. He turned to painting and literature, uh, which is essentially the artistic world that he remained in for his life, uh, except for a brief stint in the Italian military when he worked in the artillery during World War I. After World War I, he returned to this literary and art world where, like I said, he remained through to his death. Evola is a really intriguing political and philosophical figure. Uh, he's deeply patriarchal and traditional, but also an anti-traditional esotericist and occultist. Uh, he was an anti-Catholic intellectual, uh, which is a little bit unusual for the right wing, especially in Italy. This occasionally made him the ideological enemy of the fascists, who are deeply Catholic in the Italian tradition. However, uh, this did not mean that Evola was like anti-right-wing at all. He was deeply right-wing. Uh, like I'm talking, he and some of the other early fascist esotericists in Italy tried to use magic in order to bring about their individual and fascist power just for themselves and the government. Like, like That's this kind of ideology. However, the main thrust of his writings was not anti-Catholic. It was uh, about the decline and decadence of modernity, uh, which is an extremely clear, very obvious and normal fascist propaganda line. Uh, his ideology was also deeply spiritually sexist and racist, and I mean that sincerely, like he was spiritually committed to sexism and racism. So Evola himself wasn't a fascist per se, but that's particularly because he was fundamentally elitist. You know, he believed that only elite, well-off, extremely well-educated, brilliant, and like spiritually refined people could lead the world, uh, whereas fascism is fundamentally a populist ideology. It's something that, that, that is for the masses. Evola continued to write and, you know, 
be a public intellectual figure throughout the Second World War period and also afterwards. He was an important intellectual figure on the Italian right, if uh, sort of like always an outsider of it. After World War II, he stayed in this light. You know, he remained an esotericist and writer uh, with some alleged involvement in a neo-fascist organization in the 1950s. Uh, however, he was acquitted of this. His writings remain extremely influential, not just on the Italian right and not just in Europe, but throughout the world. In fact, we know that Steve Bannon, the key ally and former chief of staff, former president Donald Trump, was not just a fan of Evelo, but also read him a lot and like uses his ideology in uh, his understanding of the world. Uh, so that's, uh, that, that, that's one of the tendrils, one of the continuing ongoing results of Evola's ideology. Julius Evola died this week in history on the 11th of June, 1974, of a heart attack. So, Evola, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell friends, family, comrades, and colleagues about the podcast. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 spelled out, all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. I'll talk to you next week.